Don't mind all that. <sighs> Jude. So, um, last week, Caleb did a wonderful job pointing to the primacy of public worship, corporate worship. And we're kind of transitioning, we're getting to the one another's, but we began with this idea of the corporate and our corporate responsibility to worship God rightly and well. Now we're transitioning more to the horizontal in our relationship to each other and our duties to each other as members of one another, especially in a local assembly. And we're going to begin, before we get specifically to the New Testament one another's, we're going to have two kind of introductory lessons. The first one, there is the exhortation to know doctrine, to know good doctrine, and then next week will be the exhortation to know the people, the people to whom you are devoted. And these two things are essential if we're going to be effective in performing the one another's of the New Testament towards each other. To know sound doctrine, who God is and what He's done and how that applies to our lives, and to know the people around us and how we might help each other. So, there are three areas today, three major areas today where I want to touch on the importance of knowing sound doctrine and how it applies to us. The first is in the governance of the local church. And I guess I got a little puritanical with my subheading. So the members of the local church are duty-bound to know doctrine for the proper governance of his church. Point one. Point two is the members of the local church are duty-bound to know doctrine for the proper stewardship of the keys of the kingdom, which are theirs. And this is a specific reference to Matthew 18. And what you see there, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Church discipline, bringing into membership. And the third area, the members of the local church are duty-bound to know doctrine for the proper ministry of the word and prayer to and for each other. So those are our three main categories we're going to be looking at and emphasizing the importance of knowing good, sound doctrine for these things. So, we're beginning, the members of the local church are duty-bound to know doctrine for the proper governance of his church. And when we talk about local churches and knowing good doctrine, we primarily, our minds go to what is the faith statement and what are the teachers teaching. And that's a good place to start, so we should start there. That's why we're in Jude. So... Let's start with Jude, verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I have a few questions. Who is Jude writing to? 
Who's the audience for this letter? Body of believers. And to be more pointed, it's not the elders of the local church. It's not the deacons of the local church. It's not the most theologically gifted of the local church. It's called beloved and kept, right? Which is all of us. Every single one of us are the called, the beloved, and the kept. So therefore, who is charged with contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints? Us. All of us. Not just the officers of the church. But really, every member of the local church is charged with contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We could ask, what is the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints? It's the gospel, the, new, the content of the New Testament, the content of the Old Testament, which requires if we're going to defend it, we have to know it, right? Where have certain people crept in unnoticed in Jude? The church. The idea being your local church, where you're at. Certain people have crept in unnoticed to your assembly, and it's incumbent on all of us to know the doctrine well enough, to know our doctrine well enough, that we can participate in contending for the faith. Are there any questions about that? Because I, I think it's fairly clear, but if there's something unclear, I think it'd be helpful to pause right away. But what I'm trying to get at is that the duty for holding the doctrine of the church in purity is not just the elders. Obviously, we're held to a higher standard. Obviously, we're the ones that have to formulate this to teach it. We're using this to shepherd and guide. But that doesn't mean that you're all off the hook for knowing your Bibles and trying to figure out what sound doctrine is, right? And just practically, just knowing so many of you, the vast majority of us, the vast majority of us have fled from churches that we found to be either false churches or true churches, but were critically unhealthy in either their doctrine or their practice. Now, how do you think those churches got to be that way? People crept in unnoticed, one way, not known doctrine. The average person in the pew, for whatever reason, thought that they didn't need to study. They didn't need to know. They didn't need to press into God's Word. And so over time, this weakness develops into serious errors in the church. And so for all of you that have fled the churches you fled to come here, assuming that you see this as a healthy church, it's incumbent on all of us to make sure it stays a healthy church. And not just Caleb and me, not just Brother Caleb and the elders, but on all of us. This is part of what you're doing when you knit yourself to this community and say, I want to be a member of this local body. You're saying, I'm going to participate in maintaining the doctrinal purity of this assembly. And there's a few really helpful things to keep in mind with this. 
if you would even be tempted to coast off of an assumption that your elders are going to take care of it. Uh, Caleb and I were talking this week, and we found Judges 2 to be a very helpful text to have in mind for this. Your elders will not live forever. And when you get to Judges, that was the problem. Joshua did not live forever. And the elders that knew Joshua did not live forever. So Judges 2, verses 6 through 10, when Joshua dismissed the people... The people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath, Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the rest is the book of Judges. They were coasting on the faithfulness of their leaders. Their leaders were not eternal. And once they passed away, they did not have the the fortitude, the theological strength to avoid idolatry and all the sins that so characterize the book of Judges. But, additionally, assuming that you are pleased with your elders currently, you are not guaranteed that you will always be pleased with your elders, and not for bad reasons. Like, what I'm thinking of is what we see with Solomon. And we've been reading in 1 Kings for a while now. 1 Kings 3.3 Solomon begins with this wonderful, wonderful praise. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. But we know it does not end here because it's bookended with that last chapter in Solomon's life in chapter 11. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women. And you see that bookend. He loved the Lord. He loved many women. Many foreign women. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. This is why, in case you need any encouragement, you cannot depend on us. This is something we all need to be working towards together. Knowing the Bible as well as we can for ourselves, and adding what God is working in us to the strength of the body. This is why all of us, from the most avid readers to the least, from the most theologically inclined to the least, should be involved, should involve ourselves in striving for biblical fidelity in the doctrine of the church. So when we're thinking about the governance of the church, first we're thinking about our doctrine and the doctrinal purity, but there's also just the actual governing of the church, right? So when we see in the New Testament, we're convicted of a congregational church polity. Which means, among other things, that you are responsible for selecting elders and deacons, for confirming them into their office, and even just right there, Acts 6.3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among yourselves seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And what does it mean to be of good repute? What does it mean to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom? You need to know your Bibles to be able to fill in those definitions. And you're going to see this with the qualifications for deacons and elders as well. Titus 1.9. This is uh, 
think a qualification for the elder. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. What does it mean to hold firm? What is the trustworthy word? What is sound doctrine? If you're the one selecting the elder, you have to know that. You have to know what that is so that when you put an elder into the office, you know he meets this qualification. You've got the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he, will, he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may fall into disgrace or not fall into disgrace into the snare of the devil. Now, most of these qualifications have some subjectivity to them. Obviously, the husband of one wife is fairly objective. <laughs> That's not hard to measure and figure out real quick. Do you meet this qualification? Most of these other qualifications have some vagueness to them that we have to figure out as a body what does this mean? And what does this mean concerning the man that is before us? And do they meet this qualification? And this is something that we cannot do without being well seated in the Word of God. We need wisdom from God's Word to be able to discern whether the man put before you meets these qualifications. Then you have general church governance. Still in 1 Timothy 3, we've read this text many times. Verses 14 and 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave, him, it, how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Being a congregational church, when it comes to the finances of this church, we're going to bring all the big decisions to you guys. And you're going to have to discern what we're going to do with our resources. And how we do that, we need biblical wisdom for. We all need biblical wisdom for. And when you get to 1 Timothy 5, there's specific instructions regarding pay for the elders, regarding benevolence for widows and orphans. How are we going to do this? We need everyone involved to have biblical wisdom. And by way of illustration, just consider, just consider our own government, and at least ideally how it should be structured. We're not a monarchy, and in a monarchy, you as a peasant farmer don't need to know anything at all about economics, about foreign policy. You don't need to know anything. You just need to shut up and listen to your king, right? The experiment that our country in, in, attempted is that everyone who can vote would be invested and would learn all of these things for themselves so that they could help the community live in the best way possible. It elevates the responsibility of the individual. And again, what I'm trying to get to us this morning is that the responsibility of the individual member is elevated. We're not relying on a pope. 
We're not relying on a bishop. We're not relying even on the elders or the elders of a presbytery outside of this church. All of us are responsible for studying God's Word and knowing it and bringing it to bear in application for the governance of the local church. Just as a final point here, thankfully, remember, one of the earliest lessons in this series, we talked about the perpetuity of the universal church. That is 100% true. Christ is building His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But that does not apply to the individual local church. Individual local churches can and do fall all the time. We cannot do anything about the PCUSA or the ELCA. Can't do anything about the United Methodist Church or the SBC. And we don't even have, we have very precious little control, even over what the other churches in Arlington do, even what our sister churches in FIRE do. But we have responsibility over this church, this local assembly. And so the encouragement, the exhortation is that we all take that responsibility seriously and press into the Word of God that we might help the local body. Any questions about the governance of the local church and the need to know sound doctrine regarding that? Yes. Well, I skipped it in my notes, but just for an example, it's a cheeky example. But church that started from Martin Luther. Many people claim that Heritage now have a lesbian pastor. Like, it's a dead church. They've so left God's word that they think they can just do whatever they want. And yes, you're right, there's a lot of churches that fit that bill. They might be full of people to varying degrees, but the Word of God is not their guide. The culture is their guide. Their leader is their guide. Anything but the Word of God is their guide. And so, yeah. Right, right. So, point two. The members of the local church are duty-bound to know doctrine for the proper stewardship of the keys of the kingdom which are theirs. For this, turn to Matthew 18. We've been here a lot, and it's a good text to be in a lot, especially when we're thinking about our doctrine of the church. Not the least of which it's because Christ mentions the church specifically. Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector." Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, 
If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And we're focusing especially, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And if you've listened to the lesson Caleb gave on membership, the binding is bringing in to the local body. And then the loosing is explicitly what's talked about in this passage. When someone is excommunicated. The local church has this authority. As is, I think, inarguable in the local context. For where two or three of you are gathered in my name, wherever there is a, an assembly of believers in the name of the Lord, there He is in power to bring into the kingdom and to expel from the kingdom. And it hardly needs to be said that if we have this power, we need to know the Word of God well. This is not something we can do willy-nilly. Even bring membership, right? We can't just bring into membership anybody, whomever we want. That's why Caleb and I, we try to interview, well, we do interview, everyone that would be brought before you to be accepted into membership. We try to just ascertain, are you a believer? I mean, you've all been through it. So you know what we ask. But <laughs> we're just trying to determine, are you a believer? Because we're not going to bring someone into membership who is not a believer. And then, of course, when we consider church discipline, many of us either have personally experienced or know people who have personally experienced been being kicked out of a church on less than biblical grounds. And the pain that that causes, the unjustified pain that causes, it's a horrific thing to do. And we don't want to be guilty of that here. We want to be certain that if we are going to excommunicate someone, we are doing so because the Bible compels us to. And again, we got to know the Bible in order to make that determination. We have to know it well. And just keeping in mind, there are verses that might speak to us when we might be tempted to bring someone under church discipline. 1 Corinthians 6-7, Paul is aghast that the church is taking members of the church to the world to court and where that applies to us is in verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? And what I'm getting at here is church discipline is not just for anything anybody might do that ticks me off. Paul is exhorting us here, we need to have a willingness to be wronged, even by the members of this church that you're taking to court. Right? You see that in the text? You're taking members of your local body to court for things they've done against you. And he's saying, why not rather be defrauded? Like, this is an option. You can just choose to endure the wrong. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7. through 
Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And if we're going to apply this, we have to have a category for someone in this room can sin against me, and I don't I don't have to bring it into a church discipline situation. And we don't have to agree that you sinned against me. Because we're not always going to agree. One of you ticks me off and I go to you and say, you sinned against me. You just don't see it, right? It's like, brother, I get that you're upset and I, I don't like that you're upset, but I don't see it. I don't see it in the Word of God that I sinned against you. we got to have a category for, okay, I'm going to bear it. And I'm going to attempt to still love you in that. And we're not going to go to the elders and say, well, you can still come and still talk about it, but we don't have the expectation that one of us is under church discipline here. You need to sort it out, right? So again, this makes things more difficult, which means we need to be in the Word of God more to understand what might fall into when we do church discipline and when we might encourage you, you need to bear it in love and move on. Any questions? Yes. 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 It absolutely does. It complicates things. And the only way we can navigate that, again, is to be very familiar with the Word of God and how we might deal with that. And if it's a big enough beef with someone in another church, maybe we talk to the elders of that church. Bring it to their attention. Did you know that this happened? And we got to let it be up to you guys how this is handled. Because we're not that church. We have no authority over an individual in another church. But if it's a big enough beef, we can bring it to the attention of that local body and say, you may want to deal with this. You may have to deal with this. Yes. 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 So that, that level, um, that's still church discipline. It's just yes. 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 That's true. Yeah. Yeah, and that's me being kind of sloppy because church discipline is broader than what you see in Matthew 18. And the way I'm using that language, I'm referring specifically to excommunication. But you're right. Church discipline as a category is broader than that. Really, it's any conversation where you're trying to correct somebody. And it can be as, as innocuous as, hey, maybe you should watch your tone when you're talking to your wife or something like that. Like, that's church discipline. Like, even if it's something as 
non-threatening as that. So... Yes. Yes. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And just in the reflection I've done, my answer would be right now: when you seek church discipline, you're doing it for two reasons. Formal church discipline. You're doing it for the benefit of the body. This is such a grievous sin that allowing it to continue unchecked is actually damaging to the body. And we're doing it for the benefit of the individual that they might be handed over to Satan, that they might be one. The other categories, they're things that I can choose to bear because they don't rise to that level. And we can agree to disagree and still love each other in Christ. So I hope that's helpful. That's where at least I'm at right now on that. Yes. 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 That's the importance of us being together in a body and all of us knowing the Word of God well and all of us being able to say, I know you're upset, but you really ought to pray about this and consider that this is not as big of a deal as you think it is. Yeah. Right. You're, you're not able to cover it. You're not yeah. able to just let it go. And so it's, it's eating away too, and you're becoming suspicious in your own mind and your heart about things, and usually that's what is the imperative to we need to put on. Yeah. So I'm going to move us on because we're actually probably at what may be the most controversial one of all of them, and we're at the end of the lesson. So here we go. The members of the local church are duty-bound to know doctrine for the proper ministry of the word and prayer for to and for each other. Go to Hebrews 10. And I think this text is extremely clear in that there is a command to do this. Hebrews 10. We're going to start in verse 18 just because there's therefore in verse 19 and it might help with that. So... Verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, their sins and their lawless deeds in verse 17, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through, it, through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And I'm looking especially at the last three verses. Right? Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And the context is the local assembly because he's commanding you not to neglect to gather. Which means these are people you have to be capable of gathering with. 
So when you gather, stir up one another to love and good works, hold fast to the confession, encourage one another, all the more as you see the day drawing near. What is the content of this encouragement? How do we stir up one another to love and good works? With the, with the Word of God, right? And this is where this gets controversial, is especially as we, like we have this ACBC conference we've been trying to promote, trying to put on your hearts and minds to consider biblical counseling and see when we encourage one another, encouragement is often required when we're having a problem, the content of our encouragement is we really need to have it from the Word of God. And there are so many other sources from which we could offer encouragement, and it's not always bad. But the exhortation here, I think, has to be seen that we're encouraging each other from the Word of God, the promises of God, and how they apply to the problems that we have when we need encouragement from one another. Romans 15, 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. There's a confidence from Paul writing to this local church that everyone in it has an ability to instruct each other. Not just the elders. Not just the deacons. But that all of us are able to instruct one another. And this isn't just for theology proper. This isn't just so that I have a better doctrine of the Trinity. But this is for so many of the issues in the latter half of Romans that involve interacting with each other. The problems that arise from interacting with each other. He says, you guys are able to instruct one another. Why? Because you all know the Word of God. The Word of God gives you what you need to instruct one another in these things. If a brother or sister confides in you that they are discouraged after a difficult week because they are they have succumbed to a particular sin, even not holding a church office, you are able to counsel them. You can share the truth of God's Word with them in love. You can offer to pray with them. You can encourage them of the amazing grace that we have in Jesus Christ. None of these things require you to be an elder or a deacon, and as we saw in Hebrews 10, I think we're commanded to do this. You're able to do this. You're commanded to do this. If we are then commanded to encourage one another, to stir up one another to love and good works, to instruct, admonish, and counsel one another, then we must be able to do so with sound doctrine, biblical doctrine, rather than the use of the wisdom of the world. And I'm just going to read these quickly. When we look at 1 Corinthians 3 and 1, you see the foolishness of the world or the wisdom of the world compared with the wisdom of God. And the emphasis here that we should be going to God in His Word for true wisdom and not outside of it where there is foolishness. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul shames the Corinthians for bringing their conflicts before the court rather than bring them before the saints. And there's one particular verse I want to point out here that is especially pertinent. Um, When one of you has a grievance against one another, how does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters to this 
pertaining to this life. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but a brother goes to the law against brother, and that before unbelievers? The emphasis is, you have what you need to figure this stuff out amongst yourselves. And that what you have is the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. And really, the whole chapter of Ephesians 4, um, I'm not going to go through it right now, but there's so much emphasis on truth and how that applies to our lives. I want to get to the end. If you find yourself hearing all this stuff, all this that we're talking about today, the necessity to know church doctrine for the proper governance of the church, for the proper stewardship of the keys of the kingdom, and for ministering to your brothers and sisters, and you still find yourself basically saying, I don't know, that I'm just not that interested in reading those books and trying to figure out what the Word of God says to that level, to that minute detail. First thing I would try to encourage you, you might want to check your standards. I'm not saying you need to know Greek and Hebrew, right? <laughs> Amen? Somebody's thankful for that. I'm not asking you to memorize the entire Bible. I'm not asking you to be able to write a doctoral dissertation about an obscure event in church history. Okay? We're not trying to get to that level. Where I began is that there's real, what we're really getting at is do you desire to know more and are you taking steps to fulfill that desire? And that looks different for everybody. We're all at a different level and we're all striving for a different level, but... Do you want to grow, and are you taking steps to fulfill that desire? And I think everyone in this room can meet that standard by God's grace. But even if after considering that, if you find yourself utterly indisposed to learning more about who God is and what He has done, let's go to Psalm 111. Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart and the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty are His work, and His righteousness endures forever. He has caused His wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear Him. He remembers His covenant forever. He has shown His people the power of His hands, or His works, in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of His hands are faithful and just. All His precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever, to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to His people. He has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. And the whole psalm is wonderful. But I'm especially looking at verse 2. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. And when we think about theology, theology is the study of God. Particularly His person and His works. And if you say boldly, 
I do not delight in the study of God's person and His works. This is not a minor thing. This is a big deal. If you refuse to study God's person and His works, it may be because you don't delight in His person and His works. And if you do not delight in His person and His works, that's strong evidence you're not a believer at all. How can we be bought by the blood of Christ, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and be given a new relationship to God and our sin and not delight in who He is and what He's done? And this is big. I get it. But I want to lay on you that this is not an option to press into wanting to know more about who He is and what He's done. But again, I'm not asking you to know Greek and Hebrew. I'm not asking you to memorize the entire Bible. I'm asking you, do you desire to know more? And are you taking steps to fulfill that desire? have got a few minutes if there are any questions. Right. Um, who would take basically Jeremiah 31 mm-hmm. and say, I know all that I need to know. Mm-hmm. You don't have to tell me. Right? Like, I don't need to hear anything from you. I have it in my heart. I know Jesus and that's enough. I mean, first impulse is whether this is right or not. First impulse is to rebuke and say that's a highly arrogant thing to say. Um, but I, would, I think Psalm 111 is helpful in that. Greater are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. And if you're saying I'm not studying because I don't need to study, I think that's a problem. Yeah. Then you've got, you've got Hebrews 10. Do not neglect the gathering as is the habit of some. And there's the encouragement for what you're doing when you're gathering. You're encouraging one another. You're stirring up one another to love and good works. You can't do that on your own. So, I think those texts are helpful. But then, at, then again, at the end of the day, we're kind of limited in what we can do if they're not part of this local assembly. So we can encourage them. We can rebuke. We can exhort but we don't have a relationship with someone outside of this assembly that we do with someone in this assembly. Any other comments or questions? Probably one more. All right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you...